All right, John chapter 2. Let's pray first. Father God, thank you for this chapter of John chapter 2. We ask that you'd open our hearts and minds to the truths you have for us today. Help me to calm down, Lord. Please bless the study, I pray in Jesus' name. All right, beginning in verse 1, John chapter 2. This is one of those great famous stories in the Bible that just about everybody knows about. It's kind of a fun story, I think, and it actually uh, is the beginning prematurely. Of the, it's the beginning of Jesus' miraculous, public miraculous ministry, okay? My, I have a strong suspicion it's not the first miracle he performed in his life. And we'll see some things here that allude to that. But we begin in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So you notice in this first couple chapters of John, John's giving us almost a day-by-day rundown of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whereas the second half of the Gospel of John focuses on just the last couple weeks of Jesus' life here on earth. Very interesting But here in the early going, he's giving us a day-by-day rundown. The third day would be the third day after his encounter with Nathanael in chapter 1 where Philip brings Nathanael to Jesus. Remember, hey, here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile, no deceit. Jesus knew Nathanael's heart, and it was a good heart. It wasn't a mockery. He was actually commending Nathanael. Third day after that, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, Cana's in the region of Galilee, as you know, about 12 miles west of the Sea of Galilee and about 15 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. So it's just right in the middle between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, of course, is only about 3.78 miles southwest of Cana. So it's a short journey, probably about an hour and a half walk. Um, The mother of Jesus was there probably means that Mary was involved in the wedding celebration in some way, uh, planning, preparation, and so forth. Uh, One of the uh, Bible commentators that I've referred to throughout the years, William Barclay, he said some of the later Gospels, which never got into the New Testament, add certain details to this story. And of course, he's speaking of of Gospels. He says one of the Coptic Gospels, these are Gospels that uh, were were not determined to be divinely inspired, but they can still give historical information. There's an early set, uh, one of the Coptic Gospels tells us that Mary was a sister of the bridegroom's mother. Again, not in the Bible, but quite possibly true. There's an early set of prefaces to the books of the New Testament uh, called the Monarchian Prefaces, which tell us that the bridegroom was no other than John himself, John the Beloved, the one who wrote this book. Maybe, we don't know for sure that his mother was Salome, the sister of Mary. We know that. We do not know whether these extra details are true or not, but the story is so vividly told that it is clearly an eyewitness account. And so these are possible aspects of this scenario, of this wedding in Cana. Nonetheless, whoever was getting married, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was involved in this wedding. Verse 2, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. You know, I just thought of something. Part of what happened now is Roger's fault. Because he prayed in the back room. What did you pray? Something about, Lord, give Gary boldness. Help me. He basically, he caused it to happen. Okay? It's Roger's fault. He prayed that I would do that. I hadn't planned to do that. 
Roger and, and Crystal, we'll blame the two of them, okay? So, okay. Not that I feel bad about it at all. So I say thank you. Thank you. Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Uh, this separate mention here of Jesus and the disciples seems to validate the idea that Mary had a specific role in the wedding. It's probably the wedding of a relative or a close family friend, hence the invitation to Jesus as well. And it was customary for the disciples of a rabbi, and Jesus was recognized as a rabbi, a teacher. It was customary for the disciples of a rabbi to go everywhere he went. That's the whole idea of being a disciple, a follower. The disciple goes everywhere the rabbi goes. Okay? His disciples, those that he had made when he was in Judea. So at this point, we're talking about Peter, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel. Remember, those are the four guys we've met so far. They're the ones that would accompany him to this wedding. Notice they weren't yet called apostles, but they already, as we learned in chapter 1, believed that he was the Messiah. And the miracle that Jesus is about to perform here would undoubtedly serve to further convince them that he was the Christ. Verse 3, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, you probably know this, but in those days, wine was the only drink other than water. And running out of wine at a wedding feast would be like a wedding reception today, running out of all drinks except for tap water. And Jewish wedding feasts back then went on for up to seven days. Imagine that. If you've ever been to a wedding reception, uh, especially as I've gotten older, after a couple, three hours, man, I'm done. <laughs> the young people will go on into the night, I guess, but they, they could go up to seven days. So the implication here is that Mary is fully aware of Jesus' supernatural abilities and expects him to do something. It reminded me of the Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? In this case, you're going to call Jesus because they're out of wine. There's nobody else there that could do anything about it. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, to us in the modern world, him addressing his mother as woman might sound harsh or disrespectful, but in that cultural idiom of the time, it was totally appropriate. In fact, it is the same term by which he tenderly addressed Mary Magdalene after his resurrection in John 20, 15. He also refers to his mother when he's there on the cross and he's commending her care and keeping to John the Beloved. He calls her woman, John 19, 26. So it's not a negative statement. Perhaps not quite as endearing as if he'd said, Mom, but totally appropriate. What does your concern have to do with me, woman? And again, another indicator that she's some type of wedding coordinator or something because out of all the guests, it's his mother who is voicing this concern about, hey, they're out of wine. And then he tells her, my hour has not yet come. And this is a multi-layered statement. And I'm going to let you take your pick. One possibility here, when he says, my hour has not yet come, his public ministry would not officially launch until after his temptation, 40 days in the wilderness where he encounters Satan at the end of that 40 days and nights. 
It was after that time. First he's baptized, then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and nights, fasting, praying. The enemy tries to tempt him. He successfully resists, resists no surprise there. And then his public ministry begins. So my hour has not yet come because his miraculous ministry was intended as one of the ways to demonstrate the validity of his claim to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Two, his hour is referred to multiple times in the Gospels as the hour of his final sacrifice on the cross. My hour has not yet come. I think the first one would be preferable to the second one. There's a third one. Much like the death and resurrection of Lazarus, remember what happened. Lazarus' sister sent a message to Jesus who was up in the north, in the Galilee region. Uh, your, your friend, your good friend Lazarus is ill. We need you. Please come. The scriptures tell us that Jesus deliberately delayed his coming down to Bethany. Disciples were kind of puzzled by that. And by the time they got there, Lazarus was already dead. And Jesus said, this is that God may be glorified. Because Jesus had every intention of raising Lazarus from the dead. So much like the death and resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus would wait until that hour when the supply of wine was completely exhausted in order to magnify the significance of the miracle. Take your pick from those. Interesting thoughts. My hour has not yet come. And yet, you got to love Mary's tenacity. She knows her son after 33 years or 30 years. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Mary wouldn't take no for an answer. And by the way, Jesus did not tell his mother no. He simply uh, says, well, hey, what are you asking me about this for? Why are you telling me this? It's not really my time yet. Whatever he says to you, do it. Another example of Mary's authority over these wedding procedures, apparently she's telling the servants, whatever Jesus tells you, do it. But here's a thought. Wouldn't it be great if every believer operated this way? Think about this. In fact, I think that's what God would desire for us. Whatever he says to you, do it. Kind of goes with what I talked about earlier, right? We don't do things because we think it's going to solicit the proper response. God knows I don't do that. We do it because he tells us to do it. Whatever he tells you to do. Okay, do you guys remember a gentleman named Abraham? Do you remember what God told Abraham to do? Take your son, your one and only son. Now, Abraham had a son named Ishmael. But God didn't recognize him because Ishmael was a work of the flesh. Folks, we're guilty of that sometimes too. We try to carry out God's plan our way. So Abraham and Sarah were complicit in this thing. God had promised them a son, but they got impatient. They couldn't wait. So Sarah, can you imagine this, ladies, tells Abraham, sleep with my handmaiden, Hagar, and let her bring forth a son for us. Today we would call that a surrogate, right? Yeah. Although usually surrogacy is done through other means, not by <laughs> telling your husband to sleep with her. 
Although in some cases that happens. So Ishmael, God did not recognize him. And by the way, you probably know this also, but Ishmael became the father of the Arabic tribes who are now the Muslims who have hated the Jews from time immemorial because of jealousy. See, one little sin. Do you realize the repercussions? People don't. They make bad choices, bad decisions, not realizing the repercussions can carry on not just through your own lifetime, but in the case of Abraham and Sarah, thousands of years. What a great philosophy, what a great way to live. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Remember the old expression that became popular some time back, what would Jesus do? Sadly, like most other expressions of that kind, kind of became a cliche, but at its, at its core, it's absolutely true. That should be a question we ask ourselves in virtually every situation, right? Can you imagine all the bad things that wouldn't happen if people always ask themselves, what would Jesus do? Oh, this lady wants me to sleep with her, and I'm married to somebody else, and she's married to somebody else too. It's awfully tempting. What would Jesus... <laughs> Hello. You don't have to finish the sentence, do you? Yeah. Hey, man, marijuana is legal now. Take a hit, bro. God says you're to obey the laws of the land. Come on. What would Jesus do? He wouldn't take a hit. Would he? No. See how that works? God's made it so simple, but we complicate it all the time. What would Jesus do? Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there was there six water pots of stone, stoneware, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, so these water pots, if you will, were for the purpose of washing hands before and after eating and for the formal washing of vessels, the, the purification rites that the Jews practiced. Even articles of furniture, Luke eleven thirty nine, Mark 7, 3 through 4. Here's an interesting verse in Matthew 15, 2. The Pharisees, always trying to find something to go after Jesus and his disciples about. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And so because the disciples were living with, hanging out with, following Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, they weren't walking in the legalism of the Pharisees. And so they weren't practicing all the Jewish uh, purification rituals to the nth degree, and that became a criticism, one of many, of course, towards Jesus and his followers. But that's what these pots were for, and it doesn't mean that they were full of water. It says containing 20 or 30 gallons. That meant that's how much they could hold. That's a lot. That's almost the size of a rain barrel. Now, when trans transformed from water to wine, which is coming up here real quick, this would equate to between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. We don't know how many guests there were there. I mean, it sounds like there were quite a few. Jesus said to them, 
But these weren't originally the containers for the wine that the wedding party had been consuming. They were for ritual washing. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And so, again, apparently the pots were at least partially empty because he said, fill them up to the brim, to the top, so full that no wine could be poured in to give the appearance of a mixture. This was not some trickery, some fakery. Fill them up most of the way, we'll dump a little wine and it'll look like, you know, it'll, and it'll taste like wine. In fact, that's a common practice in Europe when they're trying to uh, train up their children uh, to drink responsibly because, again, that's a, just a common part of the European uh, culture to have wine with your meal and so forth. They would water the wine down uh, quite a bit and give it to the children so that they could begin to learn how to consume it responsibly. We also know that historically, just like in Israel, Europe uh, had big problems with purification of their water, bacteria, and so forth, and so the, the wine was a safe thing to drink to prevent them from getting ill. Paul even told Timothy, take a little wine for your frequent stomach ailments. Fill the water pots. So, um, Furthermore, the pots were used for this miracle in which wine had not been kept. Keep that in mind. They weren't used for that purpose. These pots were never used to put wine in, but simply to keep water for purification. God's message to us, his people, folks, notice, fill it to the brim, not halfway God's message to us, Lord, is, uh, to his people is always one of fullness and completion. You know that old expression, the glass is either half empty or half full, right? It all depends on your attitude. But with God, it's never half empty. It's always full. David said, my cup runneth over. John 10.10, 10, this is an example of fullness. Jesus said, the thief, Satan, Comes, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what I told you he's doing in the world today, and he's doing a good job of it. And the only ones standing in against, it, against it are you and I filled by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. All right? And if we're not standing in the way, then nothing is. All right? I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly, or some translations read, to the full. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life to the full. It doesn't mean you're going to be rich, wealthy, prosperous. Some of the fullest lives ever lived were lived by people who were dirt poor. Okay? Life to the full does not have to do with material things. It has to do with fullness of the spirit, spiritual things, inner peace, inner joy that does not depend upon circumstances. John 7, 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Again, I've heard this translated, out of his heart will, will gush forth <coughs> torrents of living water. Again, is God going to just give you a little drizzle? No. Rivers of living water. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Remember that song? Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 not to him who was able to do exceedingly, abundantly. Listen to this, folks. Above all that we ask or think. We doubt God. We, we, oh, I don't know if this prayer is even going to get answered. Probably not. Never seems like God answers my prayers. Well, part of that is because 
We want it right now. I mean, Moses, at age 40, was cast out of Egypt. He killed a guy, an Egyptian, who was abusing a Jewish person. And for the next 40 years, all he does is live in the desert and, sh and, and herd sheep. 40 years. And then by the time God calls him at age 80, he doesn't even want to go. And then it took another 40 years to get to the promised land, but he's not allowed to go in. And you say God doesn't answer your prayer because you prayed it five minutes ago and it hasn't happened. Right? Patience is the fruit of the Spirit. He who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Has God ever answered your thoughts? He has mine. I didn't even pray it. I thought it. And God says, I love you, my son. Yes! We used to sing that song. We ought to do it again sometime. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. Remember that song? All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. And we go around like a bunch of wounded puppies. Oh, what was me? Eeyore. Oh, uh, Saturday, 10 a.m., the Eeyore Fellowship. Nobody will probably come anyway. Who's laughing over there? You, I like it. You moved. You guys are all messing with me today. But I like it. Okay. And I like the laughter. It's okay. Did you know that God made us to laugh? God gave us a sense of humor, right? You think he wants, there's a time and a place to mourn. There's also a time and a place to laugh. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. To do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think. God is such a good God. Sometimes he's so anxious to bless you, he can't wait for the prayer he answers your thought. Do you like that? I like that. I think it's great. Whew. I haven't even had a full cup of coffee. But it was a big one. It was my big mug. But it, well, I didn't drink the whole thing. Maybe I did, actually, now that I think about it. Man, is he wired. Woo! Okay. Only had one donut. 1 Corinthians 2.9 But as it is written, I has not seen, listen to this, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. As much as we can try to imagine it and visualize it, and we have scriptures to help us, none of that even begins to tell you how amazing and awesome it's going to be when we move into paradise with God. God's message to us, his people, is always one of fullness and completion. Can we remember that? Fill them to the brim. Verse 8, And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. No need to wait for fermentation here. This miracle was instantaneous. The master of the feast, or also referred to as the governor of the feast, the one who presided over the occasion, the one who stood at the head or upper end of the table, he had the charge of entertainment, provided the food, Gave directions to the servants, etc. 
Kind of like the best man in our modern, modern wedding receptions. He's just kind of like the master of ceremonies and so forth. They took it to him. Based on Mary's initial instructions to these servants, they carried out Jesus' directions completely. Again, another example we should follow. And you see, just like the loaves and the fishes, this is a miraculous event that's unfolding step by step as people act in obedience to the instructions given to them by our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, that, notice another important thing here, folks. I've told you before many times, it's so easy to determine which side somebody's on. God is pro-life, Satan's pro-death. Okay? But I'll tell you another way you can tell. Jesus stays in the background. He draws no attention to himself. He gives the instructions. He says, okay, now take it to the master of ceremonies, the governor, the head of the feast. But Jesus lays back. Tell that to some of these blowhard preachers who like to toot their own horn. Who's getting the glory, God or them? That tells you who they're really working for, okay? Verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So confirmation, the water has become wine simply by Jesus speaking the word. Notice that. Jesus didn't stick his hand down in there. We know on different occasions he laid hands on, he put mud on eyes and so forth, but he didn't touch those those uh, containers. He didn't stick his fingers in them. He just spoke the word. Genesis 1-3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. This is called divine fiat, speaking things into existence, which the lying faith preachers and teachers will tell you, you can do. Only God can do that. Nobody but God can do that. But then Kenneth Copeland and his ilk, they say they are God. So many deceivers out there, folks. You've got to pay attention. This phrase, let God said, appears nine times in Genesis 1 as God speaks all things into existence. And here Jesus spoke this wine into existence. The master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Folks, what a joy, a privilege, and an honor to be one of those lowly servants. Think about that. Matthew 5, 3 through 5, New Living Translation. God blesses, or blessed are, remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That means humble, broken, and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Again, humility. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This world promotes just the opposite. Self-righteousness, self-centeredness, pride, arrogance, in-your-face, aggressiveness, 
God promotes humility. Watch for those who have it and follow them. These humble servants were the instruments through which God, Jesus Christ, performed this miracle. How many of you like to be one of those humble servants through whom God performs miracles? You can be and you will be. Some of you already have been. If you stay humble and broken before him, poor in spirit. Verse 10, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Now, this is not necessarily to mean, folks, that these wedding guests were intoxicated. We know the Bible discourages that very strongly. But at the very least, when the guests' palates were more sensitive and able to discern the quality of the wine presented, their senses had not yet become dulled, if you will, and perhaps not to the point of intoxication, but dulled to the point to where they wouldn't recognize ripple from toujours allure or whatever. <laughs> when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. So that was the normal practice at these events. Start everybody off with something really good. And I don't know how that worked back in those days because I think everybody made their own wine, I think. I don't think they had any vintners like we do today, but maybe. But they would give out the best that they had. And then as people, you know, had more food, more wine, then they could introduce the inferior stuff. And at that point, the guests would tend not to notice the difference. Now, I do have to say, I'm not promoting the consumption of alcohol, but this whole narrative tends to refute the idea put forth by some that Jesus and his disciples did not drink fermented grape juice. For one thing, that fermentation process is what helped to purify the beverage and protect them against bacteria and so forth. And given the concerns with bacteria, other pollutants in the water, the alcohol created with the fermentation process served to purify the wine, providing a safe alternative, okay? Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at a glutton and a wine-bibber, or drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and senators, 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 so oh, whoo-hoo, boy, those senators need Jesus, let me tell you, baby, come on, some more than others, <laughs> so Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of being a wine-bibber, a drunkard, because he had gatherings, meals, with tax collectors and sinners, and they were apparently drinking wine, obviously. You've kept the good wine until now, they said. Not realizing that the groom had nothing to do with it, the master of ceremonies, the governor of the, of the wedding feast, tells the bridegroom, boy, you held back the good stuff till last. He didn't know the bridegroom had nothing to do with it. Everything God and Jesus do is the absolute best. Another message here, folks. Jesus didn't make any cheapy cheapo wine. He made the best. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that 
to lay down one's life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this. God doesn't give you second, third, fourth, fifth class love. He gives you the greatest love, agape, unconditional love. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is also able to save how much? To the uttermost. He doesn't just kind of save you or sort of save you or maybe save you. He saves you to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him, Jesus Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's another very encouraging thing about this message here this morning, folks. I don't know how often you think about this. Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. In other words, he's always praying for you before the Father. That's pretty awesome. And I just realized as I'm about to close that I'm really hot. Uh, it took a while, didn't it? I was so heated up I didn't know I was hot. Okay. One more, James 1.17. Listen to this. Please listen to this. Every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is constant. He's consistent. He's trustworthy. He's reliable, unlike any and every human being. And every good and perfect gift is from above. Now we give gifts to one another and that's appropriate to show our love and appreciation and that's a nice thing. But if you want the best, guess where it comes from? God. Final verse, John 2.11. This beginning of science, beginning, I told you at the beginning of the message, this is his coming out miracle, although it's really before he officially publicly comes out this beginning of signs jesus did in cana of galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him beginning of signs for public consumption if you will i think it seems pretty obvious that his mom had seen these things before remember she tells him the problem and expects him to fix it I'm sure Mary witnessed some interesting things growing up, for Jesus growing up. Of course, Mary was growing up with him. She was only 14 or 15 when she had him. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, just a few miles from the town he grew up in, 3.78, I think we said, was the distance, and manifested his glory, the glory of the creator of all things, folks. We showed you in Genesis. God said, God said, God said, Jesus manifested the glory of God by doing the same thing that he did in Genesis chapter 1, speaking something into existence that was not. His power and authority to speak things into existence. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is how we started this teaching, the very first chapter of John. The Word became flesh. The Word, Jesus, big W. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And his disciples believed in him. John, who wrote this gospel, was an eyewitness to the glory of God manifested through his son, Jesus Christ. 
day by day as they walked with him and talked with him, as they observed his miraculous ministry. His disciples believed in him. Their faith in him grew stronger and stronger. Important question as we close this morning. Can you, can I say the same? That day by day we're walking with him, we're talking with him, and our faith is growing stronger and stronger because it could and it should. Let's stand. Let's bow our heads for prayer. If you have a prayer request, please raise your hand. And we will see that that prayer is lifted up to the Lord. Father God, you see each hand, you know each one. Lord, we come to you now because we trust you, we believe in you. We know that you love us. We've learned a lot about that today, that you have promised us fullness and completion, not only to answer our prayers, but even our thoughts, and even above and beyond all that we could ask or think. So, Lord, we come now uh, with hope, with faith, with trust, and we lift up our prayer requests, Lord, first of all, for his physical issues, for health, for healing. Lord, for... Um, things that have caused damage to our bodies, accidents, uh, injuries, sickness, disease, whatever it might be, Lord, we know that nothing is too difficult for you. From the, the simplest affliction to the most complicated, we lift them all up to you. We pray for healing, for peace, for strength, for relief, Lord. Have mercy upon your people. We call out and we cry out for your grace and your mercy that you would Pour out your healing upon our physical bodies, God, for eye problems, Lord, for cancer, for diabetes, for heart disease. Lord, there's so many afflictions besetting us in these days that we're living in, but you are greater, you are better, you're the great physician. But Lord, like Job, we do make this promise, though you slay us, yet we will praise you. But our hope and our prayer is for healing, and we trust you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Lift up, for Father, mental and emotional issues. Those can be just as devastating, if not more so. Lord, for healing from anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. God, we yield them all before you. Ask your forgiveness for those times when we do doubt, when we don't trust, when we give way to fear. But Lord, you know us inside and out. You know that we are weak, uh, vulnerable, and we lift all those weaknesses and vulnerabilities up to you and pray that you would heal us, not only physically, but in our 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 heart, our mind, our souls, mentally. We pray for deliverance. And you said you came to set the captives free, Lord. Set us free from anything that would hold us captive and keep us from following after you. Keep us from being the men and women of God that you've called us to be. We ask for your your deliverance, that you'd set us free in Jesus' name. Pray, Lord, for uh, relationships that have been damaged or broken, marriages, friendships, workside relationships, neighborhood issues, Lord, help us to be peacemakers. Lord, you are the Prince of Peace. You promised us the peace that passes all understanding. Let us walk in that peace. Help us to be representatives of that peace. And whenever and wherever possible to bring reconciliation and healing into the relationships with which we are involved. We pray especially for marriages that have been damaged or broken that you can bring healing and restoration. Lord, that that which the enemy is intended for evil, you would use for good. And Lord, lastly, we pray for financial issues, Lord, as we face these difficult times. Lord, we've been prosperous and blessed in this nation beyond uh, anyone's expectations, but we see how as our leaders, our nation, 
are turning their backs on you. That prosperity is fading. And now more than ever, we need your wisdom, your guidance on how to be the best managers of our resources, to be good stewards. And Lord, we pray where we fall short that you would graciously, lovingly fill in the gap, meet our needs, Father, as you promised to do. And we will give you all the praise and the glory. We thank you for your word, the power, the dynamic nature of your word, your living word. We thank you. We praise you. We ask you now to receive our final offering of praise in Jesus' name. Amen.